This is a picture of a beautiful lake. It looks lovely, doesn't it? Go there, just take a nice walk. It looks like autumn time. I'm not sure when this was taken. Does anybody know where this is? Not much to go on. And no cheating. If you were here in first service, don't do it. That's it's wrong. Just a reminder, we learned about the wrath of God in Sunday school. So, uh, <laughs> might have been an improper application. Anybody, this is uh, in Minnesota. It's Lake, and I may get this wrong, Itasca. I'm going to say it my way. Has anybody heard of it? Lake Itasca, Minnesota? It's a very famous lake. So, Right here, uh, these little stones, and you can't see this edge here, but it, it's right there. So, I mean, you're seeing the whole crossing of this, I would call it a creek maybe, a stream, possibly. River's a bit much, uh, but it's a little area. You're looking at the mighty Mississippi. That's what you're looking at. Lake Itasca is the headwater of the Mississippi River. Those streams, or those stones, excuse me, right there, are the beginnings of the Mississippi River. So if you go to Lake Itasca in Minnesota, you can walk across the Mississippi River. This is what it looks like a little farther down. It's a little bit more what we might think of when we think of the Mississippi River. I'm not sure where along its length this is. I'm guessing it's somewhere around St. Louis. The Mississippi River at one point is actually 11 miles across. Now, this is kind of a swampy, marshy area up in Minnesota, but it's a large, large area. At the place where it's navigable, in other words, where large ships like this can go on, the largest place is about a mile across, Just still very impressive. At one place, it is 200 feet deep, and at the end of the river, where it dumps into the ocean, 1.6 million gallons per second flow through the river. Just to remind you, it starts here. Okay, little trickling stream. Now, big numbers uh, intimidate me, so I like to find a way to kind of pare it down. 1.6 million gallons, okay, I think in concrete terms. So take a jug of milk, a, a one-gallon jug, okay? Stack up 1.6 million of them. I don't think they'd fit in here. Stack them up. Move them. Doesn't matter how far. In one second, move all of them. And then stack up another right behind it and move it again. And just keep going every second. That's how much water the Mississippi is putting out every second. That's amazing, isn't it? Today we're concluding our series that we've called A Long Walk in the Same Direction, a study of the Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms of the pilgrims of Israel as they would leave their homeland at least three times a year that we know of, and they would travel to Jerusalem for the festivals. Commanded by God that they walk and go there to offer sacrifice and participate in worship. And I imagine as they stepped out of their front doors with their family in tow, probably bickering along the way if they're anything like us today. Come on, aren't you ready yet? I'm going. And one kid's down the road and the other kid's still upstairs getting dressed. You know, that's just the way my family would be. And... uh and they're about to go, and then they walk out onto the road, and they're on the road from their little village, maybe, or one or two other families. Oh, you're leaving now for Jerusalem, too? Yeah, yeah, let's walk together. And, and the crowd gets a little bit bigger. And that road from that one village joins roads from a couple other villages, and the crowd gets bigger. Hey, let's walk to Jerusalem together. You're going to worship. Yeah, I've got my sacrifice. Yeah, we're going to worship. And the crowd gets bigger. And as you get closer and closer to Jerusalem, the roads join together, and they get larger and larger. And the crowd gets bigger. And all along the way, 
you'd be singing these songs. You'd be reciting these psalms of ascent, preparing your heart for worship. And then you walk up the hill, the mountain, if you would, to Jerusalem and many different gates to go into Jerusalem. And in the streets of Jerusalem, those roads would converge and this massive gathering of God's people would come together there in Jerusalem at the temple. And that's the point that we have reached today as we look at the final two psalms in the Psalms of Ascent. Open up to Psalm 133. We're going to look at Psalm 133 and 134 this morning. And the picture is, and you can tell from the context or the text of the psalm itself, they've arrived, they're at the temple. And I believe Psalm 133 is sort of a response or or a God-driven reaction to this large gathering of people. I hope that at some point in your Christian life you get a chance to attend a large Christian gathering, a conference of some sort. Have you ever joined together with 10,000, 20,000 other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an amazing experience. I, I would be intimidated to have my local church be that way all the time, but it's powerful when you hear the people sing and the room just shakes. When somebody's teaching the Word of God and you're looking around going, man, we're all studying the same Word. And you say, I'm a part of something. God has called me to be a part of something bigger. We join together. And then you take that room with 20,000 or so people and you think this is just a teeny, tiny little slice of all the Christians on the face of the earth saved by Jesus Christ. And then you take all the people on the face of the earth saved by Jesus Christ and you think about them all together and you think that's just a teeny, tiny slice of all the people saved by Christ throughout history. And then you begin to get a glimpse of what will happen when we gather together in the heavenly temple when Christ returns. God's people all together. And so we come to Psalm 133 and the blessing of unity. Let me read this for us. You can follow along in your Bible. I hope you have one. If not, there's one in the pew in front of you. Feel free to follow along there. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. At the very beginning of this psalm, we're we're not left to guess what the theme of the psalm is. It's right there at the beginning. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's easy to forget that we're a part of something bigger. It's easy in our day-to-day life to go about our day-to-day life and our work and our home life or whatever it is and think, I'm all alone. Nobody else knows what I'm going through. It's one of the reasons I believe God in His wisdom ordained that we do gather together for worship to say, I'm not alone. There are brothers and sisters in Christ going through the same things or similar things. And so here the Israelites have gathered together and they say, wow, this is good and pleasant. And they are reminded they're a part of a nation of faith. They were part of God's people, the Israelites. As we sit here this morning, we are surrounded by, gathered together with Christians around the world. Part of God's people, saved by Jesus Christ. If God is our Father and we are His children, then the church is our family. Think about that. We talk about God as our Father. He made us. He saved us. We're adopted as His children. 
So God's our father, we're his children. But then that has an effect with the group that we're with. You're a child of God, I'm a child of God. Guess what? We're family. We're family together and there needs to be unity. And this psalm gives two pictures of the blessings of this unity. Look at these two pictures. Verse 2, it is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if somebody took olive oil and just wet your whole head and let it drizzle all down your face and got all over your clothes. Doesn't that make you want to be united with other people? (laughs) Sounds disgusting. I don't want it. I don't want unity. Okay, this is coming from somewhere, okay? Exodus chapter 29. The tabernacle was set up. And God chose Aaron. He said, Aaron, I've got a special job for you. You're going to be the high priest. And the high priest had a very important role in all of Israel. He would be the guy that on the high holy day, he would go into the holy of holies, the very presence of God, and he would offer the animal sacrifice there to atone for all the people. He was called to be different. He was set apart. And so God said that I'm setting apart Aaron as the high priest. And he said, take the oil and pour it on his head in the sight of all Israel. So all of Israel would look and see that guy, that Aaron that we know, that maybe we grew up with, he's not the same as he was. He's somebody different. He's been set apart by God for a purpose. And now that picture of being set apart, sanctified, for a purpose, is now brought in and God is saying to his people, unity is that for all of you. It sets you apart for a purpose. The world desperately needs to see unity among God's people. A gospel-driven, Bible-based, God-fearing unity. The problem is, we come so often to church, we come together in Bible studies, we come together looking for a church, and we say, what are you going to do for me? Did you say this the way I would say it? Did, do you speak the way I speak? Do you see, sing the songs the way that I sing the songs? And we start from this position of selfishness, and then we wonder why we don't have unity. Unity starts from the position of, it's not about me. It's not about me. I'm not here to get what I want. In fact, what I want is sinful and wrong. So I'd rather not have what I want. I want what God wants. And if we are each and every one of us not looking at what we want and instead looking at what God wants, then it's like those streams that combine and they form the Mississippi River. Not because the water looked at the other water and said, yeah, I like you, let's travel together, but because they were going to the same place. That's what shapes our unity And our unity displays the gospel. The world sees the unity, or should see, the unity of the church and says, only God can do that. I want to know what it is that causes that person to sit next to that person. Because as I look at the socio-cultural dynamic, you two have nothing to do with each other and it makes no sense that you even like each other. And then we say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Take the apostles for a second. These 12 apostles, and we we learn things about them, right? Matthew, the tax collector. And another one who was called um, the zealot, Simon the zealot, right? Now, a zealot was somebody that 
would like to run out of Israel anybody that had anything to do with the Greek and Roman Empire. In fact, the extreme zealots would kill people that gave in to the Greek and Roman Empire. That's what they wanted to do. That's why they got that term zealot. They wanted to purge Israel. Tax collector was somebody that basically sold their soul to the Roman occupiers and said, I can use this as a chance to get rich. Now you take those two people and you put them together in one room. Do you think they're going to get along? And yet these people became the people that Jesus chose to display and declare the gospel to the world. Why? Because that's what he does all the time. So the people would look and see only God can do that. Unity sets us apart. But it also gives life. Look at verse 3. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Mount Hermon was a, a large mountain in Israel. And it would often get early morning dew. A lot of it. The problem was you couldn't, you, well, you could live up there. You wouldn't really want to. You certainly wouldn't want to farm up there. So it's great. You got all this dew up on the mountain, but you can't really grow crops there. But what if all of that dew would constantly, continuously come down to Jerusalem and all the surrounding fields? And Jesus, or God, is saying, yeah, it's like that. Unity's like that. That life-giving picture. In fact, dew and rain throughout Scripture, but especially in the Old Testament, is a symbol of God's blessing on His people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 2. I'll put it up here on the screen for us. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I think we've seen an example of this lately. I mean, we've been practically living in a desert, it seems. All the grass is dead and dry. The trees are all wilted and droopy. And then, this past week, rain comes. And the dew begins to form. When I got out to my car this morning, it was just covered in dew. And the plants are coming back to life, aren't they? Things have turned green again, which is great, right in time for the fall that they go all brown again. But still, they're green for a while. And I almost imagine, what if there was a, a chorus of grass or a chorus of trees and they would just be singing, hallelujah. They'd be crying out in the hallelujah chorus because the rain has come. And God says, that's what my teaching is to you. God says, my telling you about who I am, about my love for you, my grace to you, it's like the dew that gives you life. But he takes it a step farther in Matthew or Micah chapter 5, verse 7. And this follows what is a messianic passage, a proclaiming, a promise of the coming Messiah. And it says this, the remnant of Jacob, that's another way of referring to Israel, will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. Like dew. It says your unity with each other not only is a blessing to you, but a blessing to all those around you. God specifically chose to put his people, the Israelites, in that land of Israel. And he told them, when he put them there, you're not going to have a whole bunch of water. There's not a ton of streams that come through the land of Israel. There's the Jordan River. That's really about it. There's some seasonal things. But he said, you are going to have to depend upon me to bring the rain and bring the dew. And you will live under the conscious and constant dependence upon my blessing. And if you trust me and you follow me, I will bring the rains. If you do not, I will withhold the rains until you come back to me and return. 
And so they lived with this picture of the dew and the rain being a source and a symbol of God's blessing. And so here, as the Israelites gather together in Jerusalem around the temple, and they saw and they were reminded of the crowd that they're a part of and the work of God throughout their history, and they come together and they say, yes, unity. We're a part of something more than just us. And finally, he says at the end of verse 3, For there the Lord bestows His blessing, even life, evermore. It is God who bestows the blessing. Our unity must come from God. So there's a double meaning here. Not only is unity a blessing from God, in other words, God blesses us by keeping us united. We need Him to do that for us. We can't manufacture it. So unity is a blessing from God, but also that unity is blessed by God. When we live together and put aside our petty differences, when we love each other through the lens of Jesus Christ, God blesses that. And I'm not saying he's going to make us happy and healthy and and give us everything we want. I mean, he says, I'm with you and I'm going to work through you. There's this profound idea in Scripture of blessed to be a blessing. God blesses us with his teaching, with his word, with the unity of the faith, a a gospel-shaped community, and then that overflows in the world as people look at us and say, wait a minute, you guys didn't do that because I know you, and I'm pretty sure you couldn't do that. And we say, yeah, look to Jesus. And the blessing that we've received becomes a blessing that overflows and other receive. It must come from a long obedience in the same direction. We must be brought together by the gospel, called to something bigger, greater than us, shaped by something that's not about our preferences, but about the truth of God. We have been blessed, and our unity must be a display of that blessing. Which leads us to Psalm 134. I've called this a blessing, or the blessing of blessing, which seems very repetitive, and it is. Because that's the way God's blessing works. When He works in our lives to bless us, it not only becomes a blessing to us, but it becomes a blessing for those around us. And as we bless other people and God works through us, that in turn encourages us and becomes a blessing to us. I think it is a profound impact of sin that when people are struggling, sin steps in and says nobody else can know or understand what you're going through. Nobody has ever been through anything like what you're going through right now. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever met somebody that thought that? See, I'm just hurting and nobody would ever understand. That is the lie of sin. It keeps us stuck and alone. If you're ever struggling, you might be right. Maybe nobody's been through exactly what you've been through. But they've been through other things and have seen God work in those areas. And it is a blessing to come and, and with our hurt and our pain and hear what God has done through somebody else. doesn't make it all go away. doesn't make it all miraculously better. Well, I guess I won't worry about it because God's been good to you. But it does put things in perspective to say, wait a minute, that God that's been good to you is also good to me. I may not see it right now. That's where the blessing of blessing comes in. And I can encourage someone else and they can, in turn, encourage me. The city would have been packed and busy in Jerusalem. These times of the year when everybody had to gather together, it would have been just overflowing with people. And day and night, they would have had to come and offer their sacrifices. 
be a tough time, I think, to be a priest in the temple. Working all the time. I wonder, and again, this is my own spin on this, so forgive me if I'm thinking too humanly about this, but I imagine the priests, like the week before, getting together and saying, okay, we've got the festival coming up, we're going to be overwhelmed, we've got a lot of people, and sort of the leader, maybe the high priest, takes a bunch of straws, he breaks a couple off, says, okay, pick the straws, who's going to serve at night? And you go through, and you go, oh, long straw, I get served during the day, great, and you pull out the short straw, oh man, I've got to work all night long in the temple. And there they are, struggling with their ministry. Now again, maybe I'm putting too much of myself on there. But I think we all go through those times of really, why, why bother? It's hard. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. There's only a few people coming. and Maybe they're not even all that important. I don't want to serve at night in the temple. I mean, come on, can't I serve during the day when people will see and it's really powerful and important? And I love Psalm 134 because it's like the people, the crowd coming together and encouraging the priests. Listen. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who is the maker of heaven and earth. What does it mean to bless the Lord? I think we can understand a little bit God's blessing to us. He gives us good things. He meets our needs. He's kind. He's gracious. He's loving to us. What can we possibly give to God that would help Him in any way, shape, or form? I mean, it's like the old adage, what do you give to the person that has everything? How do you bless somebody that literally has everything, controls all things, and if he doesn't have something, he could just make it out of nothing anyway? How do you bless the Lord? I think blessing is is more than just a gift. I believe it means to actively and intentionally live in praise and worship. When we're blessing the Lord, we are actively, intentionally, day in and day out, praising and worshiping Him. That's what we have to give Him, our worship. I want you to write down a phrase. As I was studying this, this phrase came up to me again and again. As I thought about these people encouraging the priests, even the priests that were serving at night, and saying, even you, lift up your hands and and worship. Here's the phrase, even you, even now. Even you, even now. Who should worship? The really important people, they should worship. The pastor, I mean, come on, he gets paid to worship. He better worship and he better do a good job or we'll get somebody else. I mean, who should worship? Me, I'm, I'm just toiling at home or I'm just doing my secular job. Nobody even cares if I'm a Christian or not. I'm just doing the laundry. I'm just sweeping the streets. I'm just doing whatever. Who should worship? Even you. Who should be doing a good job in the temple? And have praise and worship in their hearts among the priests? Even the nighttime priests. They don't get to slack off because they're at night. Even them. Who should worship? Even you. When? Well, Sunday mornings, of course, when we come together, you better put on your worship hat and dress up really nice. And there you should worship and you should sing well and watch what you, what you say and, and, you know, watch your actions. But Monday morning comes, oh man, you can do whatever you want, right? Because it doesn't matter. You're at a secular job. You're going out partying with your friends. Who cares? When should you worship? Even now. Who should worship? Even you. When should you worship? Even now. Changing the baby's diaper. It's gross. Worship the Lord. Doing the dishes. You're you're sitting in a meeting with your boss and going, this is worthless, just wasting my time. Worship the Lord with your attitude. You're paying your bills. Worship the Lord. When should you worship? Even 
now. That's the principle I see from that line right there. Praise the Lord, your servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Even you, even now, even if no one sees what you do, even if your work and your day-to-day life seems meaningless, even if you're retired and your body is struggling, you're saying, I can't serve the Lord the way I used to. Maybe you're right. You can still serve. You can still pray. You can still pick up the phone and encourage someone. Even if your work seems meaningless, even you, even now, bless the Lord. But again, not only is there this concept of blessing the Lord, but also living in the blessing of the Lord. Let's talk a little bit about the Lord's blessing to the Israelites. Well, he created them because, you know, he created everybody. He called them. The Israelites would not have existed as a nation if God had not shaped them, called them. He made them who they are. He reached out to Abraham and he made a promise to him. He called them. That was part of his blessing. He saved them. They were stuck in Egypt, could not do anything on their own to remove themselves from this desperate, enslaved situation. And he saved them. He brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He saved them. So he created them. He called them. He saved them. And then he directed them. He got them together at Mount Sinai and he said, now look, I want to tell you who I am. I want to tell you who you are. And I want to tell you how this relationship's going to work. That's what the law was all about. He directed them so they would know how to live in a relationship with him. And then he also blessed them. All along the way in their relationship, he blessed them. Sometimes those blessings were really difficult. Took them into exile that they might learn better who he is and about the effects of his sin or their sin. Sometimes the blessings were wonderful. He provided their food and their crops and he saved them from enemies. He blessed them. But here's the thing. God blesses, God blesses that which he creates, calls, saves, and directs. We can't look for the blessing of God without accepting the rest of it. Because it's all part of the same thing. Imagine being a farmer and living a hundred miles from the river. And here's the river with its life-giving water, and we're way over here in the desert. And we're praying, God, send me water. And he says, I did, it's right there. Go live there. Uproot your life from the desert that you're in and live in the water that I have provided. No, God, I like it here. Could you please send me water? You know, I already did. It's right there. See, that's our sense of blessing. God's sense of blessing is the pilgrim way. He says, come, follow me. Walk where I'm walking. I sent my son to die for you, to save you, and I started this journey. I've given you teaching from the Word all along the way, where to step and how to live. I brought you together with other believers. Walk with me. Learn who I am. And we're standing off to the side going, no, I don't want that. I know better. But would you still kind of bless me? I'm just over here doing my thing. God says, no. Come. Follow me. Walk with me. So, How do we wrap up this series? We are still pilgrims today. I don't know when Christ is coming back. I could probably be very rich if I wrote a book about it and came up with some odd number, and then in two years when I was wrong, write another book, how, whoops, I made a mistake, and I'll release a new one, and probably a lot of people would buy it because they seem to eat that stuff up. But I don't know. I don't know when Christ is coming back. But I do know He is. And I know that between now and then, you and I have a hard road to walk hard road of trusting Christ, 
a hard road of maintaining unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, a hard road of being a display of God's glory for this world and bringing the gospel to these people. But that road has a precedent in Scripture. And these Psalms of Ascent help us to see the pilgrim way of trusting God in His deliverance and walking in obedience along the way. We started the series with repentance, saying we don't have it all together, looking at our situation and saying this is messed up and turning from that. We talked about rejoicing and salvation. We looked at God's mercy and His grace, His deliverance, His blessing along the way, especially on families. We looked at our struggle with sin, the sin that's in our heart and the sin that's in our world. And we looked at God's faithfulness to His promises. That's not just Old Testament stuff, is it? It's so easy to look at the Old Testament and all the history and say, well, that has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with us. It's the same God doing the same things. It's all true for us as well. Even us, even now, the way our politics are going and the way our culture is going and the way our economy is going, even us, even now, can worship. And we must do so together in unity. A unity shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls us to the pilgrim way, a long obedience in the same direction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it's easy to manufacture these things. It's easy as people to sit down and say, what would join people together? What would keep people happy? It's easy. It's even effective. But God, I believe it is not glorifying to you. The hard way is the one step after another, trusting you, learning more about you, And as we do that, we are brought together, sometimes, often, in spite of ourselves, with other people that you are at work in. And as we walk together along this way, I pray that we would encourage one another, that we would struggle for and fight for unity with each other, a gospel-shaped unity. I pray that praise would flow from our lips and we would be a blessing to you as we live intentionally, day in and day out, to worship you. Because God, the day is coming where these little streams that we see in our own lives and our own little church and our own little life, they're going to be joined together with others from around the world through across history. And it'll be so much greater than the Mississippi River. A crowd unfathomable, uncountable will be gathered at the foot of your throne. And we will come together and we'll say yes. You have brought us here, and all praise and all glory will be given to you. And all of this is made possible through Jesus Christ and through Christ alone, who gave himself in our place that we might be set aside for you, and that we could walk with you and be with you forever and ever. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.